So Father, we come to your word now this morning and we come to you boldly through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived the perfect life that we could never live, who took our place in death, the death on a cross that we deserve, who triumphed over the grave so that we could call on his name in faith and be saved. Father, we thank you that for all of us who belong to you, that death has no say in our lives. We, we thank you that the grave no longer has a claim on us today because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice and we stand in his victory this morning. And as we come to your word today, Father, we ask that you would help us to see your son, Jesus, to hear his word for his church today. Father, to submit ourselves under its authority, to be encouraged by its power, would you embolden us to fulfill exactly what you've laid out for us to see here today. So Father, we submit to your word now. Will you have your way in this place? Edify your church, glorify your name, sanctify us in truth, we know that your word is truth. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 is where we'll be together in our time today. This is the passage uh, that Brandon read for us earlier. And if, uh, if you're today here with us for the first time as our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And uh, since about mid-January, our church family has been in a message series called Ecclesia, uh, where we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about what the church actually is um, and what we as a church are called to do. So uh, 12, 13 weeks in now, we've seen week in and week out now this word church, ecclesia, it means in its simplest form, assembly or gathering. But more specifically, when we look at the whole of the New Testament, for something to constitute a biblical church, it's got to meet a certain set of criteria. When we look at the whole of the New Testament, we see that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word, to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So almost three months into this thing, who thinks they could recite that definition without looking at your notes now? Who's, who's to that point? Maybe not quite yet. Well, today we're looking at the second half of that last sentence, which emphasizes working together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is why we're taking a look this morning at the Great Commission. About this time last year, uh, we were out uh, at Burton Wells Park with our oldest son. He had a baseball game, and I was coaching his team. And uh, it was a, a busy night out of the park, several games going on. If you've not been out to Burton Wells, it's a massive complex. You know, uh, multiple baseball fields, multiple soccer fields, football fields on the far end. And, and we get to the end of this game. Your parents had been locked in. Coaches had been locked in. And there was a family on our team that at the end of the game, they realized that they couldn't find their three-year-old son. Um, that you're looking around them and, and, you know, he had been close by, but they were zoned in on what was happening there at the end of the game. And, you know, as any parent knows, this is the worst feeling in the world, right? You're, you know that they're right there, but you look away for just a second, then you look up and suddenly they're, they're gone. 
And so this word, you know, went out quickly uh, with, with everybody. And, and we understood, man, there's a, a serious problem here. And, and so everybody immediately starts to mobilize. We didn't really ask any questions besides, you know, what's his name? Uh, what's he look like? How's he dressed? And within minutes, several hundred people had brought this entire complex to a standstill. And we were looking at the fields. We were looking at the concession stand. We were looking in the restrooms. We were going into the woods, you know, just uh, on the playground, everywhere on the property that we thought he might have wandered off to, we tried to make an effort to look. Uh, there was another field close by that they heard about what was going on. They brought the game to a stop completely brought the game to the stop so that we could be looking for the, this little boy. And then after about 15 minutes, um, this little guy had wandered uh, across the street where there had been busy traffic because of all the games going on, across the street, across all the soccer fields, almost all the way down to the football fields at the other end of the complex. And to quote the great philosopher Monty Python, there was much rejoicing. We, we finally found him, and, and when we found him, there was great rejoicing uh, among all the people. You know, it's amazing how this, this one simple fact, you know, people who were otherwise total strangers, for the most part, didn't really know each other, that this one simple thing had to happen. All we had to do was learn that a three-year-old boy was missing, and we immediately began to take action. In that moment, nobody was asking, do I have a part to play in this? Everybody was asking, what part do I have to play in this? Everybody wondered, you know, uh, what can I be doing this? How can I be engaged? Nobody was complaining that it was a school night. Nobody was thinking about their dinner plans. We knew that a three-year-old boy was missing and needed to be found. And it was enough to make us drop everything that we were doing to pursue him. Your church, this morning as we gather here together as a local body of believers, many of us, you know, for the umpteenth time in our lives, there are two billion people globally who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask us the question as we start this morning, what else do we need to know? What else do we need to know to mobilize? What else do we need to know to take action? What else do we need to know to be moving, to make ourselves busy changing this reality? You know, uh, Andy Johnson in his book about missions, a short little book, he cast this vision for the church. He says, imagine a local church where the congregation's mission to the nations is clear and agreed upon. Elders guide the congregation towards strategic missions. Missions is held up as a concern for all Christians, not just the niche missions club. The tyranny of new trends and demands for immediate visible results hold no sway. Members see missions as the work of the church together, rather than the personal, private activity of the individual. The local church is a global mission. And as we sit here this morning, over two billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus. And this is not the responsibility of a few. It's the responsibility of every single local church, every individual follower of Christ, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not something when we hear these numbers that we should even be asking ourselves, do we have a part to play in this? We should be asking, what is my part to play in this? You know, as uh, we, we shared a few weeks ago, our mission statement as a church in, in its simplest form says that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And really, that's the overview of Matthew chapter 28. That, that's the mission for our church because that's Christ's mission for his church. 
Our mission as a body of believers in the message of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is that we exist to glorify God by preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. That's our mission for our church because that's Christ's mission for his church, and that's exactly what we're going to see today as we open Matthew 28. I just want a word of caution here uh, as we get into Matthew 28 this morning. You know, for the last five years of our church's history, I mean, I'd say the last five years, we've only been around five years, for the five years of our church's history, uh, we've tried to preach on the Great Commission about every 18 months. And the reason that we do this is because the natural trajectory for any church, any local congregation, the natural focus does not tend to be outward, it tends to be inward. You know, there's an inherent danger that we face even in what we've been doing the last few months as we focus on biblically what does it mean to be a healthy church. There's a danger in that we can become so introspective, so focused on what we're doing here and making sure that we're doing it right, that we begin to neglect the reality of global lostness that surrounds us. But what is we're going to see as we have in Matthew chapter 28 this morning, there's no such thing as a healthy church that is not outwardly focused on the need among the nations. So again, for those of us who've kind of grown up in it, like you grew up in Sunday school and you got all the gold stars and you've heard the Great Commission a million times, I just want to challenge you this morning, don't check out on this. This is still Christ's word for his church today. We know that last words are lasting words. And until Jesus returns or calls us home, this is the mission that he's given for his people today. So from Matthew 28, let's read again verses 16 through 18. It says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority. Everybody say all All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So these are the marching orders for his church. This is the mission. This is the assignment that Jesus has given to his church, the call he's issued to his church. And this call causes us to look three directions. We see from Matthew 28 that the Great Commission is first a call to look upward. It's a call to look upward and recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Now, verse 16 reminds us that the disciples are now down to 11. This is following the death of Judas, who had betrayed Jesus and then took his own life. Back in verse 10, we see that Jesus had instructed the women who discovered the empty tomb to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. So Galilee is where the earthly ministry of Jesus began, and it's from Galilee that he's going to send his disciples to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 17, you know, we find what, what appears, it maybe at first glance, to be a little bit of a paradox. We're told in verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And, and, you know, these two don't initially seem to go hand in hand, the idea of worshiping and doubting at the same time. Now, again, just, just kind of put yourself in their shoes. Let's look at the context here. This is a group of people that had seen the physically resurrected Jesus. I mean, they've seen Jesus face to face. They saw him be crucified. They saw that he has now come out of, of the grave. And so it'd be really easy for you and I, you know, hindsight 2020, to look at this and ask me, like, what, what's wrong with these guys? Like, they see Jesus come out of the grave, and somehow that's still not enough. And, and it's easy for us to, to kind of maybe look down on them in this moment. But again, just, just put yourself in their shoes, okay? Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus was dead, and then a few days later, he was not dead. That is unusual. 
That's not normal, right? And, and so you can imagine, like, this is a lot to process at one time. He was dead, and then he's not dead, and now he's going to be ascending to the Father. He's given us this assignment to reach the entire world. You, you can kind of feel the, the anxiety that might come along with this. And, and again, it's, it's important for us to see what, what's happening here in verse 17. That This is not an encouragement for us to doubt. We actually see in Mark 16 in the Great Commission, Jesus rebukes them for their doubt. So this isn't an encouragement to doubt, but this is where I think we can be encouraged. Is, is that even the fo- earliest followers of Jesus, those who had seen that he overcame the grave, even they had worship that was mingled with worry. I think verse 17 might perfectly summarize the totality of the Christian experience for so many of us. It's worship mingled with a little bit of worry. What we see in verse 17 is, is this uh, a joy mixed with uncertainty. It's faith mixed with confusion. And all of us have felt this. Gosh, we want to believe. We want to sing. We want to worship. We want to rejoice. But we're just struggling to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And of course, Jesus recognizes this. Of course he he knows what's going on in their hearts. Of course he knows their doubts and their confusion and their questions, which is why I think it's important for us to see in the giving of the Great Commission, Jesus does not start out with instruction of what to do. Jesus starts with a revelation of who he is. And their doubts and their uncertainty and their worry, the Greek word that's used there for doubt is, is hesitant, that they were hesitant, and it could mean to hesitate. In this hesitation, Jesus does not immediately start laying out for them commands. Do this, do this, do this. Before he gets into the plan of the Great Commission, he reveals the power of the Great Commission. And he he gives them this revelation of who he is. Verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. This group of doubtful, questioning, uncertain believers, not really sure where this is going, a little bit hesitant, he starts with the revelation of who he is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, as the Son of God, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority in different capacities all throughout the Gospels. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we, we studied this a few years ago as a church, we see that Jesus taught the people as one who had authority, not as their scribes and Pharisees. There was something different about the preaching of Jesus. There was something different about the teaching of Jesus. We see from Mark chapter 3 that he had authority to sick and to cast out, heal the sick and cast out demons. And he even extends that authority to his disciples. We, we see in Mark chapter 4, he demonstrates authority over the natural elements. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Church, he talked to the weather and it listened. We've seen this authority of Jesus demonstrated time and time again in the Gospels, but the fullness of that authority wasn't revealed until after the resurrection. So you might ask the question this morning, what on earth gives anyone the right to claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to them? Well, here's a pretty simple answer to that question. You get to make that claim when you walk out of a grave. And that's what Jesus had done. Those are the types of things you get to say when you hold the keys of life and death. And that's what Jesus has done. So he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It all belongs to Jesus. And the Great Commission begins with this recognition of authority. And this is important for us to see because if it's true, if it's true, if that premise is true that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, then you and I better listen to whatever it is he has to say next. If all authority really belongs to Jesus, no matter what command he gives, we need to listen closely. And Jesus, in his authority, he calls us 
to go. And this recognition of authority is key because you and I as humans, we tend to respond in proportion to the level of authority that's calling us. The urgency of our response tends to be uh, timed based on uh, the, the level of the authority, that the amount of authority that, a, that an individual person holds as they're calling us to do something. So I remember when I was a kid, probably nine or ten years old, uh, there was a Sunday morning where I was struggling to get out of bed. Did anybody else have that problem this morning? Coincidentally, I had a late night with a Young Life trivia night last night. I, I struggled again today, so, so right on cue here. And uh, I remember my sister came to my room and said, hey, it's time to get up. And um, you know, my sister's a few years younger than me, and so did I listen to anything my sister had to say in that moment when I was trying to sleep? Absolutely not. And why not? No authority. Now, you, you don't exist to boss me around. I exist to boss you around. You're, you're the little sister, youngest of three, you know, two older brothers, and man, we just had a time with that growing up. Like, I'm not listening to anything you have to say. And then I hear it go down the hallway, and a few minutes later, I hear my dad say to my sister, hey, you need to go wake your brother up. Tell him that it's time to, to get ready for, for church this morning. So she comes in my room, she says, hey, dad says, dad says, sisters, come on, dad says it's time to get out of bed and get ready. And I'm starting to feel a little bit more urgency, but at the end of the day, she's still his little proxy, right? Like, I'm not, like, you're not him. You're not doing anything about this. I'm like, I'll, I'll be up, I'll be up a little bit later. Well, then a few more minutes go by, and I hear my dad ask my sister, where's your brother? And how she responds, she, little brat, she throws me under the bus, Right? I told him, you said that he needed to get up. And so, you know, every parent knows this. It's the heavy foot walk, you know, like you mean business. Heavy, it's not like a regular walk. It's an intense walk. You, you hear the, the footsteps hitting the floor. I hear my dad's heavy foot walk coming down the, the, the hallway there. So what do I do? Man, I jump out of bed. Like one fell swoop. The lights are on. I'm pulling clothes out of the closet. I'm awake, right? And, and why do I do this? Why do I respond to him in a way I don't respond to my sister? Because he has authority. He has authority over my video games. He has authority over whether I get to go play with friends outside when we get home from church that day. He has authority over what time I go to bed that night. He has authority over whether or not I need a little more productive labor around the house that week. My dad has authority over these things. And so I respond in proportion to the authority that's calling. And here's Jesus claiming in Matthew 28, all authority belongs to me. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. All authority belongs to Jesus, and in that authority, he calls us to go. But here's a key that I think we need to see, because what could very quickly happen is that you and I take on this posture of fear, we take on this posture of guilt, and so our motivation in going, our motivation in participating in the Great Commission is driven more by guilt than it is driven by grace. And we have to recognize, church, as followers of Jesus, even as the Lord and the authority over our lives, he's not after your begrudging submission. He's not after you just kind of going to grin and bear it and just kind of suck it up and do this because I need to do that. No, he's, he's after your heart. And what should happen with us as followers of Jesus, this is the evidence of a truly regenerated heart that's been transformed by the gospel, is, is that the natural overflow is to joyfully do the things that Jesus has called us to do. It's not just that we do what he commands, it's that we delight to do what he commands. So we're not motivated by duty, we're motivated by love. This is how John records it in 1 John 5, 1 through 3. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves, everyone who, who loves whoever has been born of him. Now watch this in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this, this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is what Jesus is after. Not a heart that does things out of begrudging submission, out of, out of begrudging duty, out of I guess I should do this. No, it's, it's out of the natural overflow of our heart and our love for him because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. It's, it's a natural overflow of joy because Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins. Because Jesus Christ has canceled the power of sin in my life. Because he's canceled the penalty of sin in death. Because he's done all of this for me out of joy for him. The natural overflow of my being is to do what he's asked to do and to delight in doing it. And that's what he calls his church to do and to be. So what is the evidence that we love God? It's that we love his people, we keep his commandments, and we don't consider it a burden to do so. It's out of a heart of joy. There's a great missionary, Hudson Taylor, who once said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. To disobey this command, for, for us to disobey this command, it's to deny the authority that Jesus claims. When we refuse to obey what God has, has laid out for us in Matthew 28, it's to deny the authority of Jesus, or at least not to acknowledge it for what it is. You know, David Platt uh, speaks to the way we often de do deny this authority in, in our sin. He, he says, God beckons storm clouds, and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall, they obey immediately. He speaks to the mountains, you go there. He says to the seas, you stop here, and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the creator until we get to you and me. We have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no. Creation recognizes his authority. The disciples recognize his authority. The book of James tells us even the demons recognize his authority. The question is, do you and I recognize his authority? Have we fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our life, evidenced by our willingness to do and to obey all that he commands? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. In that authority, he calls us to go, and out of love, we gladly obey. Then Jesus gives us the marching orders in verses 19 and 20. So all authority belongs to him. So then he says, verse 19, go, therefore... So all authority belongs to him. So go in light of this. Go therefore, in light of the authority that belongs to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is a call for us to look up, upward. Second, we see that the Great Commission is a call for us to look outward. So as we look upward, as we recognize the authority of Jesus in our lives, we then redirect our gaze outward to the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now make disciples, uh, this is the imperative command in verses 19 and 20. Our going, our baptizing, our teaching, this is all wrapped up collectively in that command, that imperative to make disciples. Um, I preached on discipleship two weeks ago. So again, I'm not going to go back and rehash what biblical discipleship is. I'll just uh, redirect you to, to the message from March 20th if you want a more in-depth look at this. But I do want to quickly break down uh, each of the components of the Great Commission as we find it in Matthew chapter 28. So first, Jesus calls us to go. He calls us to go. So this is going to involve some form of leaving. 
For the original disciples, it was leaving home. It was leaving comfort. It was leaving careers. It was leaving money. It was leaving possessions. It was leaving family. Every person who follows Jesus, wrapped up in our following of Jesus, is going to be a leaving of something else. The call to go is going to require leaving something behind. It might not cost you your home. It might not cost you your family. It might not cost you career. But it is going to cost you something. And that's what's wrapped up in the call to go. Second, he calls us to make disciples. Specifically, we're going to do for others what Jesus has done for us. We're going to go into a world full of unbelievers or those who who might follow after a false god or worship within a false religious system. So the call to make disciples is a call to call others to leave behind their sin. It's a call to walk away from a false religious system and to submit to Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord of their life. Next, he calls us to baptize. This is the first step of obedience for followers of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not the work that saves us, but it publicly demonstrates to a lost and dying world that we now identify with Christ and we have been saved. We saw earlier from 1 John, the evidence that we love God is that we love his people and keep his commandments. Baptism is a command. So so this is what this means. If someone professes to, to have faith in Jesus Christ and yet that person refuses to be baptized, it should cause us to seriously question whether or not that person's come to true faith. Listen, how could you say that you would follow Jesus to the death if you won't even follow him into the waters of baptism? That this is the first step of discipleship. It's not the work of baptism that saves us, but every true Christian will be baptized because we joyfully obey what Christ calls us to do. It's a public declaration. It sets us apart from a lost and dying world. If you study the New Testament, if you study church history, what you find is that this public profession of faith through baptism It often costs people their families, even still today, in persecuted contexts, it costs families, it costs careers, it costs homes. For many who have publicly identified with Christ in baptism, it's cost them their lives. And what we're declaring the moment we're baptized is that our old self, we have been buried with Jesus Christ and we have been raised to new life in him. Crucified with Christ, dead to our sinful flesh. After we baptize, Jesus commands us to teach. Teach them to observe, teach them to obey all that I commanded. Now again, just listen to the all-encompassing language that's here. You know, all authority belongs to Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey how much, church? All that he has commanded. Again, you uh, returned this past Sunday, so you survived, right, last week, the message on church discipline from Matthew chapter 18. Super uncomfortable, right? Right? And, and this is why we have to recognize this. So this is why we had to walk through Matthew 18 last week, because Matthew 18 is part of the all that Jesus commanded. And, and you and I have not been given the permission and the freedom to functionally edit it out of the Bible by never practicing it. You know, as uncomfortable as it is, Jesus doesn't say, teach some of what I commanded, teach part of what I commanded, teach uh, the things that are popular that I commanded, or teach all that I have commanded. This is the work of discipleship that he calls us to. And we do this, verse 19 tells us, among all nations. We do it among all nations. Now, I love the language here. And if you take a close look at the language in verse 19, all nations does not simply mean all geographic regions or countries or territories. The language that Jesus uses, Matthew 28, 19, ta ethne, means all ethnicities. This is language that's, that's highlighting every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every distinct people group around the world. This is who Jesus is calling us to. 
John Stott has said that we, as followers of Jesus, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. Listen, God in no way, shape, or form, I think this is such an important corrective to our political culture today, in no way, shape, or form have we been given permission to care only about our nation and forget about all the others. This is an ideology as a follower of Christ to be biblically faithful, you must categorically reject you know, the first time I preached through the Great Commission five years ago, um, I received this lengthy email, and I made this statement, we should not just be concerned about our nation, we should be concerned about all nations. And I received this lengthy email criticism from a guy who said uh, he and his family have been in our church for a few weeks. He said, but it's become abundantly clear to me that you have a liberal, progressive, globalist agenda for this church. I'm like, brother, I read the Great Commission. And, and like, this is where, man, so many of our folks are today. They're like, we have to be so careful is, is that recognizing, like, some of us, I fear, like, you're not even capable of reading the Bible without a political lens right now. And, and, and because of what's happening politically or in the world, we've somehow given ourselves permission to not care. Like, Jesus has not given us that option. Jesus has not given us the option of indifference to the nations. You ask, well, why, why care about wars? And why care about radical Islamic takeover of countries? And why care about persecution? And why care about what's happening here, what's happening there? We care because Jesus cares. His heart is for the nations. Did you know there's Christians outside of America? Blew some of y'all's minds right now. You're like, what? Like, like, we're all over the world. We're a global body of believers. The local church is a global mission. And Jesus has not given us the option of indifference when it comes to the nations. I want you to hear these statistics. This is from the Joshua Project. And uh, these are in your worship guide. They'll be on the screen as well. But I, I want us, church, to feel the weight and the burden of this this morning that we can actually put some numbers to that language, ponta ta ethne, and what Jesus means. This is from the Joshua Project. There are today at least 17,446 unique people groups in the world. Of those 17,000 plus, 7,000 of these are considered unreached people groups. And, and, and something is categorized as an unreached people group. A group is when less than 2% of the population is Christian. It's an unreached people group. Of those 7,000, 3,000 are considered unengaged unreached people groups. And this is what that means. It means not only is there no church presence, not only is there no access to the gospel. These are countries where people are lost apart from Christ and no one is looking for them. No one is seeking them. No one is engaging them. This means, if you just break down some of these numbers more specifically, globally, 3.23 billion people live in places with little or no access to the gospel. I shared it earlier, over 2 billion people globally never even heard the name of Jesus. You know, this always invites the question, well, what about those who never hear? Like, well, what is you know, the result for, for those who never hear? Well, a couple quick things on this. You know, Romans 1 teaches us that God has generally revealed himself to all of creation. That, that creation itself contains enough knowledge for there to be at least some general understanding of who God is, that there is a God. You find people worshiping no matter where you go in the world. That's innate to the human nature. 
But then Acts 10 also shows us that God is capable of of specially revealing himself to individual people who have never heard the gospel. That's what happens uh, in the home of Cornelius. And you hear these testimonies, particularly among unengaged, unreached people groups. You'll hear stories of uh, people who had dreams or had visions or or just randomly crossed paths with someone who happened to be a follower of Jesus, who shared them with the message of the gospel. And, you know, again, I know that offends some of our modern sensibilities, but, but frankly, church, I think that probably happens a lot more than you and I will ever be aware of. God can reveal himself however he pleases to whomever he pleases. And so we can trust in the moments where we're maybe not totally certain on a subject. There are places in scripture where we can trust. And what we know uh, time and time again with our God is that he's good and he's fair and he's just. That God is never going to do anything that's evil. So, So again, how exactly does God specially reveal himself? How exactly can all people be held accountable for the knowledge of the gospel? We probably won't know the answer to that on this side of eternity. So this is the task that's been given to us. The task that's been given to us is not necessarily to iron out the nuances of how does God reveal himself. The task for us is to make this question unnecessary. It's to be so urgent in our preaching of the gospel, so urgent in our efforts in global mission, that the the question becomes irrelevant. We don't have to wonder what happens to those who don't hear because we're doing everything we can to make sure all will hear. That's what Jesus has entrusted to his church. God in his sovereignty In his sovereignty, he has ordained that the salvation of the nations will be achieved through the preaching of the gospel. Alex shared from Romans chapter 10 when he preached on evangelism just a few weeks ago. The words of Romans 10, the questions Paul lays out for the church in Rome. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? He asked, how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So just follow the progression here. In order to call, the nations must believe. In order to believe, the nations must hear. In order for them to hear, someone must preach. And for there to be a preacher, they must be sent. Now here's the good news for you and I today. God is always going to hold up his end of the deal in this equation. Jesus has already sent us out, and we can be confident that Jesus will always save through the preaching of his word. He promises through the gospel of John, he says, my sheep, they will hear my voice and they will answer me. All that the Father has given to me, they will come to me and I won't cast them out. I won't lose a single one of all that the Father has given to me. We can trust from God's word that it never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes out, which is why we should be bold in preaching the whole counsel of God's word. Because it's not up to us over whether people like the message or agree or disagree. It's completely a work of God, completely a work of the Holy Spirit. We can boldly preach the gospel because we can trust that the word of God is always effective. And this is why we shouldn't flinch back in preaching the whole counsel of his word. Because Jesus is going to save all that the Father has given to him. But we can trust that these things are true. He's always going to do his part. He has sent and he will save. The question for you and I is, will we do our part? Will we be faithful to go to where Christ has not been named? Will we be faithful to preach and proclaim his good news? The local church is a global mission. God's plan to reach the nations is the local church. God's plan to perpetuate his memory, to cause his name to be remembered, as we will recite together at the end of our services today. It is the local church. So Jesus starts us out against this image of power. He says, all authority in heaven and earth belong to me. And then this leads on to laying out his plan. 
He says, go in light of that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he leaves us with a promise. Here's how he closes it in verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always. Everybody say always. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the Great Commission calls us to look upward. Second, it calls us to look outward. Third, it calls us to look inward. We look upward. We recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In that authority, we we look at the plan he's given us. In that authority, we're going to go. We're going to look outward. We're going to make disciples of the nations. And when that feels daunting and overwhelming, and it will, he calls us to look inward. And remember that he is with us always to the end of the age. Listen to the all-encompassing nature of this commission. Again, go, go back to verse 18, a little bit of a group participation thing here, church. How much authority has been given to Jesus? All of it. Verse 19, in how many nations has he called us to make disciples? All of them. Verse 20, how many of his commands are we called to teach? All of them. All authority belongs to Jesus. In that authority, he sends us to make disciples of all nations. As we disciple, we teach them to obey all that he's commanded. All authority, all nations, all commands. And so for all of it, he gives us this promise. I am with you always. All authority, all nations, all commands. Here's the good news. I'm with you at all times. I am with you always. You know what that means for us? That means like right now. That means like in this moment. And not just in this moment. Think back over the last week that you had. What was the lowest point of your week? When did you look least like Jesus over the last seven days? You want some really good news? He was no less with you in that moment than he is here with you today. He is with you always to the end of the age. Listen, my family's a lot like yours. We have three boys uh, they're in sports. You know, we're out at a field, feels like four or five nights a week. We're running them to birthday parties. We're trying to take care of our own house. We're trying to have a healthy marriage, you know, in the middle of all that. I mean, just life is crazy and it's chaotic and it's just run from one thing to the next, constantly tyranny of the urgent. When was the last time in the frenetic chaos of your life you stopped to remember that God is with you? He is with you. The God of the universe is with you. This is what Isaiah had prophesied centuries before. He said, his name shall be called Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. This is that promise being fulfilled. I am with you always to the end of the age. If you're in Christ, you're not just promised God above you. You were not just promised God in front of you. You're not just promised God having your back. No, you're promised God with you. And it's God with you always. You might not be a follower of Christ. You may be sitting here wondering today, well, what does God offer me? Does he offer me happiness? Does he offer me material wealth? Does he offer me possessions? Does he offer me status? Does he offer me success? Does he offer me fame? Does he offer me a happy family? And I would just tell you very, very respectfully this morning, if those are your questions, if, if, if that's what you're wondering God is offering you, you, you've set the bar way, way, way too low. Because on the authority of what we find in Matthew 29, verse 20, the answer to the question, what does God offer me, is that God is what God offers you. He offers you himself. 
the, the fullness of life, the fountain of living water dwelling within you permanently. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and your heart was regenerated, you were in that moment indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. And, and Jesus makes this crazy claim in John chapter 16. Jesus actually says, that's better than him physically being with you. You know, every one of us who followed Jesus, we've felt this at some point in time. Like, Man, if I could have just seen Jesus, if, if I could have just seen him face to face, if I could have just walked with him and heard his voice, if I could have just seen the miracles, that would be enough. But the answer, church, is that it wouldn't be enough. E even his own disciples, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We see it with the crowds all the time through the gospels. The miracles weren't enough. It wasn't enough. And so this is the claim that Jesus makes in John 16. He says there is actually something better than him physically being with you. He says, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. According to Jesus, there is something better than him being physically beside us, and it's him being spiritually inside of us. Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe that he's being honest here? And he's telling us, no, no, it's actually better. My presence not just be beside you, but dwell within you. And do this always until the end of the age. Christian, have you even begun to comprehend the power that's within you? Have you even, even started to scratch the surface of recognizing what it means that God is with you? When we were given the Holy Spirit, divine rocket fuel was injected into our veins, but most of us function like we don't have enough strength to power a lawnmower. There's something so much greater for us. that This is what's promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He tells his disciples right before he ascends, he says, you will receive power. The word Jesus uses there, dunamis, it's the word we get our word dynamite. He says, that's what you get in the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. And the express per reason that we receive this power, he says, is to be his witnesses. It's to attest to a resurrected Jesus who has saved us from our sins. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a local mission. It's a domestic mission. It's a global mission. To the ends of the earth. That's why we've received the Holy Spirit. So we recognize as we read the Great Commission, man, apart from the authority of Jesus Christ and apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, church, the Great Commission's not difficult. It's impossible. We can't do this on our own. But this is the promise of the Great Commission, that God does not just call us to go. He goes with us when we're called. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what does Jesus demand of us? What does this demand of us? Think about this. If all authority belongs to Jesus Christ, and if in that authority he's called us to go and make disciples of all nations, and, and if in that call to make disciples he has promised, I'm with you always and will provide everything that you need each step of the way. If these things are true, then what does that demand of us as a church? I want to give us three very simple challenges as we close out today. How does a healthy church approach missions? How can we ensure that we maintain an outward focus, even as we focus on the health of our own local church body? Three simple challenges for us. The first challenge is to pray for the nations. Jesus teaches in, in Luke chapter 10 that this, this is where it starts. 
It, it starts with reading. Because I know some of us, like, we feel like, well, man, I don't want to just pray. I want to do something. Well, understand, this isn't just an either or. It's a both and. By the word of Jesus, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He doesn't follow it up with, now go get busy. Go get in the harvest. He says, no, this is your first step. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we want to be a church that's praying for the nations. Now, uh, most months, our community groups, we start out the first week of the month with a prayer focus. And so that's exactly what we'll be doing this week, even in our community groups. We're going to pray for the nations. And we've given your community group leaders a guide for for how we're going to do that uh, as a church family this week. I want to be a church that prays for the nations. I want to give you one more challenge this week, though, just in light of this passage. We uh, gave this challenge about five years ago. I want to re-up this again one more time this morning. Uh, I want to challenge you on your watch, on your phone, you know, whatever is is best for you, for for the next seven days, for this week, to set an alarm for either 10.02 a.m. or 10.02 p.m. And this is the very simple challenge. This is something that all of us should be able to do very, very easily. I recognize you're probably at work or, you know, maybe you're, you're rocking the baby. You're trying to fall asleep at night, whatever this is. And, and so I'm not, I'm not saying enter into a three-hour season of prayer, but I think something very simple all of us could do this week, set an alarm, 10.02 a.m. or p.m. or both if the Lord leads you, and we're going to very simply pray Luke 10.2. We want to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest to send out laborers to the 7,000 unreached people groups, to send out laborers to the unengaged unreached people groups, to consider whether or not we are the laborers he's calling, uh, that he's calling out to go. Let's be people who are diligent in our prayer for the nations. And even as we pray, second challenge, we want to give to the nations. We want to give to the nations. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said that when it comes to a church's approach to global mission, there are those who are called to go into the well, and there are those who are called to hold the rope. Every effort in missions needs both. The reality is not every individual person is going to be called by God to uproot their family, to sell all their possessions and move overseas. Some will. And, and for those who do, there needs to be those of us who remain back being faithful to hold that rope, supporting them in prayer, giving financially to make sure they have everything that they need to faithfully fulfill the mission that the Lord has given them to do. You know, we're, uh, as a church this year, um, we've set apart about $130,000 that are directed to local and global missions efforts um, outside of our walls. And, uh, and so th- there's a lot of local things happening internationally, but one in particular that I want to highlight this morning, just in light of unreached people, is the work of Tripp and Ali Usri. Um, if you guys were at our last family meeting, members of our church, we uh, laid out that this year um, we have the privilege as a church family for supporting, for the very first time, uh, missionaries who came from among us. Uh, if you know the Usri family, they helped us plant the church back in 2017, 2018. Uh, Tripp was a pilot with the Marine Corps, and the Lord laid it on his heart to uh, use his gift and his skills as a pilot to serve in God's global mission. So uh, their family is now working with an organization called Africa Inland Mission. And what Tripp is going to be doing as a missionary pilot, man, is he's going to be transporting missionaries and critical supplies into very difficult, uh, hard-to-reach remote places, advancing the message of the gospel. And I love this. This is directly from uh, Ames' website for what their mission is and why we're so passionate about this work in particular. Their mission is to establish Christ-centered churches among all African peoples with priority for the unreached. 
And that's the work that they've jumped into. We're supporting them from our budget, but we encourage you, man, give above and beyond to support their work. You can go to the Next Steps table this morning, and we have uh, some printouts about their family and their ministry and ways that you can get involved uh, in the work that they're doing. It just amazes me. When I go back, you know, five, six years ago, when when we were uh, assembling that original team together, they were there with us. You know, all these times that we got together as a team on our knees, and we prayed Luke 10-2. When I look back six, seven years, we were praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And little did we know at the time that as we were praying for the Lord to send them out, the Lord was calling them out to be the laborers who would go into the harvest. They have faithfully answered the call to go into the well. We as a church need to be faithful to hold the rope. So we're going to pray for the nations, give to the nations. But last, what we consider is God calling us to go to the nations. It's been my prayer this week, as, as I've known we were going to look at this passage, that the Lord would raise up through the life of our church and, and however many years he gives us, that he would raise up a thousand just like Tripp and Ali Yossery, who are burdened for the nations. And I think it's a church that, that it's best that you and I use wartime language when we talk about mission. Because Jesus did not send us on a great vacation, right? He sent us on a great commission. Mission language, Ephesians chapter 6, whole armor of God. I think we need to use wartime language when we talk about the church, which means we don't need to talk about the church like it's a cruise ship. We need to talk about the church like it's a battleship. We should look at the local church as being an aircraft carrier to the nations. Like, we're, we're here for a moment. I mean, what a unique opportunity here in Beaufort. You know, we have so many military families. We have the privilege of sending people to the ends of the earth every single year. Like, what an opportunity from from Beaufort, South Carolina, to make a global impact with the message of the gospel. And and so it should continually be our prayer. We should be asking the Lord to search us and ask, Lord, are you calling me to go? Are you calling my family to go? Or, Or if not, like, how are you calling me to pray? How are you calling me to support for those who do take the step to go? We should constantly be thinking about this. How can we have a culture, not just of who's coming here, but, man, who are we sending out Sending out even locally here in South Carolina uh, into uh, whether it's South Asia, South Africa, whatever it is, wherever God's calling us to go, we should have a culture where we are raising up and a culture where we are sending out. You know, there's a, one ministry that, that does this so well locally uh, is the ministry of Beaufort Young Life. I mentioned this a few moments ago that uh, they had their trivia night last night. Uh, my team won. That's neither here nor there. Just thought you'd want um, that information today. Um, but, but what I love about Young Life and the reason we're so passionate about this ministry yeah, the work, um, Alex and Allie Holroyd, Andrew and Sarah Lancaster, the reason we love this ministry is because they understand this command to go. Like if you've seen Young Life leaders in action, some of them are in this room today and have been this morning. You see Young Life leaders in action, man, they're not waiting on students to come to them. They enter into their turf, their territory, they're on high school campuses, they're at their games. You see them out in the community goofing off. They understand this. Why do we go to the nations? Why do they go to students? Well, why do we have this this outward-focused mentality? Church, we go to others because Christ came to us. This is what Jesus has done for us, and so we're going to do this for others. John 1, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus entered into our world, entered into our territory in spite of our rebellion against him, in spite of our sin against him, in spite of our indifference to him. In spite of our turning our backs on him, Jesus in his love and his grace and his mercy, he came to this earth to save us from ourselves, from our own stupidity. 
In spite of not wanting him, in spite of resisting him, he still pursued us and came after us and poured out his love on us and saved us from the power of sin in our lives and saved us from the penalty of sin and death and gave us a new heart and renewed minds and renewed desires that are now in line with his. This is what he's done for us. And so, of course, we do this to others. This is what Jesus gave to his disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So as we go into the world, we are reflecting Christ and who he's called, and, and everything that he's done for us. And all of this we see is running to this one day of all the nations being gathered together around the throne of Jesus. And next week we will um, close this series by looking at worship. Because all of this, everything we've stayed the last 12, 13 weeks, it's leading to this one place. And this is John's vision from Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Why all this mission? Why all this sacrifice? Why all these efforts? It's all running to one place. Revelation 7 says this. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Church, that's where it's all going. It's all running to the day when every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation that God has called to himself, we will surround his throne and we will worship the name of Jesus forever. That's where all this is going. So first we look upward. We, we recognize that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And after we look upward, we're going to look outward because in that authority, he sends us out to go to the nations. And when that seems daunting and impossible and overwhelming, and it will. We look inward, and we remember that he is with us always to the end of the age. Till he returns or he calls us home, this is the mission he's given to his church. So Father, we, we stand in light of what you call us to do today, and we ask that we would have hearts that surrender to you and are submissive to you. God, I ask that even in this moment, you would begin stirring the hearts of someone who may be considering whether you have called them to go to the unengaged, to go to the unreached with the hope of the gospel because that's what you've done for us. We want to faithfully image Jesus to the watching world. Help us to do that today. Help us to go from this place boldly triumphant in the good news of what he's done for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.